In John chapter 16 this morning, we'll be looking in verses 7 through 11. John chapter 16, verses 7 through 11. So follow with me as I read. I'll pick up uh, where we left off last Lord's Day in verse 7 and read down to verse 11 this morning. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. Leave off reading there in verse number 11. I want to remind you this morning that throughout our Lord's ministry on earth, he has taught his disciples that his kingdom was not of this world. He taught his disciples that he and his message would not be received by many in the world. He taught his disciples that the world, both Jew and Gentiles, would kill him over his message and over his ministry. He also taught his disciples that he was sending them into the very same world that hated him and his message. And that they, the same world that hated him, would hate them. Yet despite all the resistance from the world, despite the world's hatred toward the message of God, he also told them that they would bear fruit during their ministry. Now, in this text this morning, our Lord is reminding them again of their fruitfulness, that it will not be because of their best efforts. It will not be hindered by the world and all of its efforts. But fruitfulness will be owed to the ministry of the Holy Spirit that he was sending to be in them and to be with them. And this is what draws our attention this morning to this text. He says in verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. It is expedient. We don't use that word very often. In the English here, the word expedient comes from a Greek word that means it will be to your advantage. In fact, it is both good and best for you that I go away. Because if I go away, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes, He is going to be in you and He's going to be with you. Now, the Holy Spirit was already at work among the disciples. We've already discussed that. And in the Lord's ministry, while the Lord was on earth, we've already discussed that. We have seen Him working already. But in the Lord's absence, the Holy Spirit would be sent... First, as one who would come alongside each 
one of the believers no matter where they were in all the world. Secondly, he would come alongside them to comfort them, but more importantly, he would come alongside them to strengthen them, to encourage them and give them the strength to carry out their Christianity in a world that did not appreciate Christianity. He would be there to teach them the Word of God. He would be there to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ among them and to glorify Christ in their ministry. He would lead them into the will of God for their life particularly. And then he would bless their efforts in the spread of the gospel message into the world so that they were victorious and that God would be glorified in their efforts. This is his ministry on the earth. It is this last truth that he would bless their efforts as they spread the gospel into the world so that they would be victorious and so that God would be glorified that Jesus Christ is addressing in this verse in the following verses. Remember, as the background to these words, Jesus Christ said, I am sending you into the same world that hates me and hates my message. That's not a very encouraging thing. And when you go, they will think they do God a favor to kill you. That's not a very encouraging thing. How do we go? How do we preach? Will we be successful? Yeah, we know he said we'll have fruit, but, but, but how will that happen in that kind of an atmosphere? Well, here's the answer to that question. I will leave because the best thing for you is that I send the Holy Spirit to be with you in your ministry as you go into the world. And so, beloved, the Holy Spirit's presence upon the earth is essential for the furtherance and success of the gospel in the world. It is absolutely essential. This is what the word expedient means. It is to your advantage. It is good for you. It is, in fact, best for you that I go away and that I send the Spirit of God to be with you. In God's eternal plan of redemption, each person of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, have their place revealed in the Word of God. The Word of God reveals that it was the Father who, before the foundation of the world, chose a number which no man can number that would be saved and that he would give them to his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Word of God reveals that all that had been received from the Father by the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ would represent them. He would die for them. He would be buried for them. He would raise from the grave for them. He would ascend into heaven and take his place on the throne for them, and he would intercede for them, and he would not lose not even one that the Father had given him. The Father had chosen, the Son redeemed. But what of the ministry of the Holy Spirit? Well, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is that is he is sent, given the responsibility in the Godhead to quicken sinners, to bring them to life, 
and to bring them into a living relationship with the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Neither the Father nor the Spirit redeemed sinners. That was the work of Jesus Christ at Calvary's cross. And neither the Father nor the Son applies the redemption accomplished for sinners and the benefits of salvation to sinners. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. So all three persons are involved in the salvation of a sinner. That's why when we baptize a believer in Christ, we baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit because all three persons of the Godhead have been responsible in saving that sinner from their sins. And so Christ says to his disciples, it is advantageous to you. It is good for you. In fact, it is best for you if I go away. And when I go away, I'm going to send you the Spirit. So, until the Lord Jesus Christ had performed his great work of redemption at Calvary, the way was not open for the Holy Spirit to descend from heaven to accomplish this particular aspect of his ministry. But after Christ died, after he was buried, after he rose again, he spent 40 days with his disciples and then ascended to heaven and on the day of Pentecost sent the Holy Spirit. And from that day until this, some 2,000 plus years later, the Holy Spirit's ministry on the earth has been absolutely essential for the furtherance and success of the gospel ministry preached by the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Once the Lord Jesus Christ completed his work of salvation for sinners, then the Holy Spirit would come and be engaged in applying that salvation to sinners all over the world in every generation up until this day in which we live. And so Jesus Christ says in the next verse, and when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. When he has come, this will be his ministry. Among other things, this will be his ministry. He will reprove the world of three things, of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. What does the word reprove mean? You know when I teach and preach that I go back to the original languages as much as I can and bring forth for you to help you to see and understand what God is saying in his word. And I am not a Greek scholar, but the commentaries and the scholars that I follow say that this word is in the future tense, active. What does that mean? Children, you don't have to understand all these things. Well, what does that mean? That means that when the Holy Spirit comes, he will be actively involved in reproving the world at the point that he comes, at some point in the future, which was about 50 days or so after Christ spoke this. He is going to be actively involved in the ministry of this earth to reprove. The word reprove means to convince and to convict. He is going to be actively involved in convincing and convicting the world of sin and of the need of God's righteousness and of a final judgment which is to come. If they do not repent, if they do not believe the gospel, if they do not have the righteousness of Christ, 
Judgment will wait for them. And the Spirit of God is there to warn them, to instruct them. You are a sinner. You need righteousness. And there is a judgment coming that you must escape. That's his ministry on the earth. That's his work. He will convict the world of being sinful, of being unrighteous, and of being presently under divine judgment. He will convict the world. He will work in the, the preaching of the Word of God so that he forces the world, whether they want to or not, he forces the world, at least in some measure, to see that they are sinners, that they are without righteousness, and at least in some measure they will be seen and understand judgment is mine. Why are there so many different religions in the world? Well, at least in some measure, the answer to that question is this. Men all over the world understand they are sinners and they need to do something about that. Judgment is coming. And so they're going to patch it up and fix it up and do the best they can in their religion. And that's not the answer. They think that their righteousness is going to be the answer. And God says it's not the answer. Christ's righteousness is the answer. And so he reproves the world. He convinces the world. He convicts the world. And he will so reprove the world that those of the world will not be able to give any excuse before God. Part of the scripture in Romans chapter 3 and verse 19 says, For we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and that the world may become guilty before God. Part of the ministry of God on the earth is to show men and women and children all over the world they are guilty and that therefore their mouth is stopped. They have no excuse. They have no excuse. In the realm of religion, some are convicted by their own conscience. And, but that is not enough to bring them to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. In the book of John, the Gospel of John, we've already looked at it many months ago. In chapter 8, verse 9, we read these words concerning the Pharisees and the Sadducees who had brought an adulterous woman to the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember that account? We caught her in the very act. Where's the man if you caught her? You caught her in the very act. And she's cast down in the presence of Jesus Christ and all these religious people are standing around. And Jesus writes something on the earth and men have tried to explain what he wrote. The Bible doesn't tell us. Whatever he wrote, though, the Bible tells us this much in John 8, verse 9. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone with the woman in the midst. 
when Jesus and a sinner are left alone, what it usually comes down to is that he saves the sinner from her sin. He saves the sinner from his sin. As the religious people leave, convicted, same word, same idea, not by the Holy Spirit, but convicted by their own conscience. Religious people have a conscience, and they can be convinced of sin, and then they go about to try to fix it. But that's not God's will. There's another way that men can sometimes be convicted. Others may be convicted by the preaching of the Word of God, but not be totally convinced of what the truth of God's Word says to them. We see this in Acts 26. Acts 26, verses 26 through 28, if you want to turn there. Acts 26, verse 26, the Scripture says, as Paul is preaching to uh, King Agrippa, he says, For the king knoweth. You know these things. The king knoweth of these things, before whom also I speak freely. For I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him. For this thing was not done in a corner. What he is saying to King Agrippa is this. You know what took place in Jerusalem. You know that Jesus Christ went to the cross. You know they crucified him. You know that after three days the tomb was empty. You know that on the day of Pentecost the disciples were out in the streets of Jerusalem preaching. And you know that 3,000 were converted and another 5,000. And you know that the church of Jerusalem grew. And now many years later, as Paul stands before Agrippa, he says, you know these things. It wasn't done in a corner. It wasn't hidden. This is a public demonstration of God saving sinners. Verse 27, King Agrippa, Believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest. I know you have the Old Testament. I know you have read it. I know you believe it. Verse 28. Then Agrippa said to Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Almost thou convinced me. You almost convinced me to be a Christian, Paul. You drew on the things that I knew. The things that I knew to be true. And you almost convinced me. Well, that's, that's conviction under the Word of God. Almost is not good enough. The Holy Spirit did not bring them all the way to Jesus Christ. And so beware of religious conviction where you go about to fix your own self and beware of preaching on conviction the way you come almost to Christ and then back off for whatever reason. The Holy Spirit's ministry is to convince sinners of their need to be saved of their need for sin and of righteousness. The Holy Spirit will also reprove in a fuller sense, more fully convinced those of the world that they are sinners 
in need of the righteousness that can only come to them by Jesus Christ. Brethren, the success of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is bound up in the Holy Spirit being instrumental in convicting sinners of their sin. Convincing sinners that they are sinners in need of a Savior. Men cannot do that. No matter how earnest my heart is in preaching, no matter how broken my heart is in prayer for those of you who are lost, I cannot save you. I cannot convince you to the depths of your soul that you are a sinner in need of righteousness to stand before God. But He can. And so my earnest, continual, constant prayer is, God, do something. Do what only you can do. The Holy Spirit must convince a sinner that he needs to be saved if he will gain eternal life. The Holy Spirit must work on sinners convincing them in their hearts that they need a Savior. For it is from the heart man believeth unto righteousness. Then he must direct their hearts to the Lord Jesus Christ for that source of righteousness. Here's a question. What does God do for the sinner in order to bring them to salvation? Well, there is a multitude of answers, and the first one is this. One thing the Holy Spirit must do for sinners in order for them to become a Christian is to bring them to the place where they know that they are sinners. You would think that every sinner knows that he is a sinner, but he does not. The Holy Spirit must convict a sinner that he is, has sinned before God. And when he, that is the Holy Spirit, has come, verse 8 says, he will reprove, he will convict and convince the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment of sin. Why? Because they believe not on me, verse 9 says. The Holy Spirit's ministry among sinners is to reprove them, to convince them, and then convict them of the fact that they are, in fact, sinners before God. It is not popular preaching. More popular preaching is, yeah, we've made a few mistakes, but God can fix that. Let's go on to this issue. No, let's not go on to that. Because it's not that we've made a few mistakes that need to be fixed. It's not that we stubbed our toe and we need to put a little Band-Aid on it. It's not that we have a little bit of a fever and all we need is a little gospel to take care of that little fever we got. We are dead in trespasses and sins, and God must do something to help us. God must do something. And so the Holy Spirit's ministry among sinners is to convince them that they are sinners and convict them of that. This is an essential aspect of the work of the Holy Spirit regarding the gospel ministry. But there is more. The Holy Spirit must convict this world of sinners of the ignorance of their real nature and their true state 
of being before God. I did not, I could never have realized how ignorant I was of what sin is before God. Sinners are not fully aware of their sinful condition. They know, yeah, yeah, I'm, I, I've done a few things bad. And they, well, but that guy down the road, I mean, he, uh, he's a drunk. I, I'm not a drunk. And that guy across the street, well, he beats his wife. I don't be my wife. I go to church. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've done a few things wrong. But, uh, you know, Christmas and Easter, I'm there. You haven't got a clue what he's saying. Not aware of what sin is and what it is in God's eyes. Not in my eyes, not in your eyes, not in the eyes of religion, but in God's eyes. And so this is the great issue. The scripture says in John chapter 3, verse 20, For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light. Why does he hate the light? Why does he hate coming to the scriptures and examining himself in light of what God's word says? Why does he despise that? Why does he look, this man thinks I'm a pretty good guy. My priest thinks I'm okay. Uh, this preacher thinks I'm all right. Why does he look to them instead of what God says? Well, here's the answer. Everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light. Why? Lest his deeds should be reproved. There's that word. Lest he should be convinced of the true condition of his sin. Lest he should be convicted that he is a sinner in the eyes of God. Same exact word used in our text in John 16 and verse 8. The Holy Spirit is sent to convince sinners of sin. He's not simply sent simply to inform sinners of their sin. You know that tone of voice, that was not good. Oh, okay, let me let me let me work on that. No, he, he was not sent just simply to inform them. He was not sent to persuade them to that they made a mistake. You know, you shouldn't have talk like that to your kids. Oh, you're right, you're right, you're right. Let me get that straight. No. Instead, he was sent to convince and convict them they are sinners and they are sinful in the eyes of God. He must show them and prove to them the sinfulness of their sin and convince them that they own their own sinfulness. By that I mean, I am sinful in the eyes of God because of me. Because of what I've done. No sinner is ever saved from sin who does not confess that he is a sinner, a sinner who deserves judgment, who deserves hell. I've produced my own judgment. I forged the chain link by link of my own bondage. I dug the pit that I am in with my own hands. I painted the darkness that is on my soul with my own brush. 
being convinced of being a sinner means I am convinced that I deserve what God has said in his word that I deserve. And I tell you what, most sinners do not want to come to that place. Will not come to that place unless the Spirit of God brings them to that place. When brought to that place, though, the Spirit of God doesn't simply leave you. He sets before you hope and mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there, a sinner bound for hell, knowing that hell is his because of his own hands, is then turned to Christ as one who can save me from my sin and save me from hell. We see this in Luke chapter 18. In Luke chapter 18, there are two men standing side by side. One is a publican, one is a Pharisee. The the Pharisee stands there and said, I thank thee, God, that I am not like other men. You know, I've done a few things bad, but I'm not like this sinner. That's what I just got. He's a Pharisee. He doesn't see his sin. The publican on the other side says in Luke 18, verse 13, the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven. He smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be merciful to me. I am the very sinner that that man over there spoke about. I am the sinner. I am the one standing before you who is the sinner. I'm not concerned about the Pharisee or anybody else in this area. I am here as the sinner. And I need mercy. And Jesus Christ said, he went down to his house justified. Jesus Christ said, mercy upon his poor soul. The Holy Spirit must convince a sinner of the fact of sin. That is, he must convince them that they have committed this or that sin. Men are so ignorant of sin, they don't even know that they have sinned sometimes. And the Holy Spirit must convince them that they have done wrong by their words, by their thoughts, and by the very actions of their own life. And we don't think like that when we're sinners. We don't think that the very thought we just thought was an offense to God. The very word that just came out of our mouths was an offense to God. The very act that we just engaged in is, a very, is an offense to God. We don't think that way. The whole world thinks contrary to that way of thinking. And so the Spirit of God must convince them of the fact that that word, that thought, that deed was an offense against God. Not only must he convince them of the fact of sin, but he must convince them of the fault of sin. And by that I mean under Holy Spirit conviction, sinners are convinced it is their fault that they are sinners. As I said before, convinced that I have sinned against God. Not, well, my brother, my sister, my husband, my wife, that neighbor of mine. No. We see this in David's life in Psalm 51, verse 4. 
where David cries out after his, after his adultery with Bathsheba. And it says, against thee, thee only have I sinned. Against thee, and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. Now, Bathsheba was partaker, and, and, and there were others in the, in, the, in, the, in the castle, in the king's home, that made way for him to get to his bedroom, and all of the rest that was going on. There were a multitude of things going on, but when David came to understand the situation, it was not Bathsheba's fault for bathing. It was not Uriah's fault for being in the front. It was not this or that. It was me, God. I sinned against you. That's the end of it. That's the end of it. Bathsheba's got to take care of her own sin. Uriah's got to, if there's any sin, got to take care of that. And the others in the king, king's castle got to take care of it all. But this is me, God. Not blaming everyone around me for my circumstance. It's me before you. I'm the one that did this. That's the facts. That's the facts. And the Holy Spirit must convince us not only of the fact of sin, but he must convince us of the foolishness of it. When sinners sin against God, they are sinning against their holy judge. The one who is able to condemn their soul in certain judgment. In Psalm 85, verse 8, David cries out, I will hear what the Lord God will speak, for he will speak peace unto his people and to his saints. Let them not turn again to folly. He calls sin folly. Why is sin foolish? There's pleasure in sin for a season, is there not? The Bible says that. We're ignorant of it. We don't even know what it's about. Why is it foolish? Well, it is foolish to sin against the one who can condemn you for doing it. It is absolutely foolish to come against God and think that you might by some strength in yourself overcome Him in the judgment day. It is foolish to think that somehow or another you will escape. It is foolish to think that somehow or another you can fix it. It is foolish. It is foolish. Not only do we need to be convinced of the fact and the foolishness of sin, but we also need to be convinced of the filth of it. Sin is dirty in the eyes of God. We don't see it that way, but it is er dirty in the eyes of God. And therefore, the Scripture teaches us of our need to be cleansed, cleaned, before God will accept us. Not only is sin dirty, but it also has a smell about it. We don't smell it. But God does. And there's a stench like a rotting car, corpse in the nostrils of a holy God. We don't see it. We don't smell it. We can't taste it. We can't touch it. We can't feel it. We don't know anything about it. We're ignorant of what it is before God. Yet God sees and 
God smells and there's this look as God looks down upon mankind and he sees them as sinners and it is a the prophet Isaiah says a putrefying sore what that means is that it's a it's a sore that has been corrupting and it's full of pus and just corrupting in the body we'll get to that in a minute sinners are so polluted by sin that only the blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse them from that sin the scriptures teach that not only are we sinners who are guilty before God but we have been polluted and need to be clean before we can stand before God you know every parent here knows something about this on a physical level your kids are outside they're stomping around in the mud and they come running in and, and they want to drink a water and you say don't come into my house with those muddy shoes on right you've been playing with a dog and my wife used to say you smell like a dog take those clothes off you smell like a dog don't come into my house smelling like that every parent here knows something about that right of course you, you know I'm right now if that's true on a physical level what about heaven the cleanest place in the universe where there is no sin and perfect cleanness don't come into my house stinking up the place don't come into my house leaving that filth all over the furniture don't you can't you got to be cleansed first and there's only one source of cleansing and it's not the water of a baptismal pool it's not the best efforts on your best day that can take away sin it is the blood of Jesus Christ who has died at Calvary's cross who will cleanse you from all unrighteousness and sins we need to be made whiter than snow Psalm 51 verse 7 David cries out purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean wash me and I shall be whiter than snow interesting whiter than snow create in me he says in verse 10 a clean heart O God and renew a right spirit in me whiter than snow what is more white than snow oh, you know what it's pure white except for one little thing every snowflake is formed around a little piece of dust do you know that gather up snow if it ever snows again put it in a glass and let it melt come back the next morning and what you're going to see at the bottom of that glass is some dirt well, it came right out of heaven straight from the earth heavens down to the earth but it is polluted with just the tiniest little piece of dust do you realize the tiniest little sin left will keep you out of heaven Jesus Christ must remove them all wash you clean from them all we need to be made whiter than snow we need to be made clean enough to walk into the very house of God 
and be ex- accepted with a smile on the Father's face. And only Jesus Christ can do that. The Holy Spirit must convince a sinner that they are fully corrupted by sin. That there is none good. There is none righteous. That there is none holy. That we are desperately wicked and defiled with sin through and through. That none are acceptable to God and all are sinners condemned to hell unless Jesus Christ saves us from our sins. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 6 from the sole of the foot, that's the bottom of the foot, unto the head, that's the top, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed, neither uh, bound up nor mollified with ointment, no medicine put on it, and from the bottom of the sole to the top is one oozing sore of sin. That's Isaiah's picture of sinners. You say, it's not that bad, is it? Oh, it's worse. It's much worse. Men's words fail them to try to explain how sin is viewed before a holy God. Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3 verse 10 says, as it is written, this is what God has to say about it. 10, 11, and 12. This is what God said about it. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none good, no, not one. That's what God says. What about this or what about that? What about that religion, what about this? There is none that doeth good. There is none righteous. There is none that seeketh after God. There is none that understanding. That's what God says. The Holy Spirit must convince the sinner of the fruit of sin, finally. Sinners must be convinced in the depths of their heart that the wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23 they must be convinced that sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. James 1 and verse 15. They must be convinced, as it is recorded in the book of the Revelation, chapter 20, verse 14, death and hell are cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. They must be convinced that hell is waiting, that death, spiritual death and destruction are waiting, that judgment is coming. They don't believe that. They believe I got a lot of days to live. My, my grandmother didn't die until, I was a, until she was 100. My, my mom didn't die she, until this. My father, and they, they argue themselves into thinking, I got years ahead of me. And forget that a 16-year-old can have a car accident or a 12-year-old can fall off a bike. Or even a child can get cancer. Sinners must be convinced that today is the day of salvation. If I'm going to escape hell, the final end, 
of all sin and sinners. If I'm going to escape that, then I need to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only one who could save me from my sins. The thief on the cross understood. If you want to go with me to Luke chapter 23, verse 39 through 41, Luke 23, verse 39 through 41, this is the scene at the cross. This is where Jesus Christ is at the cross. On his right hand is one thief and murderer. On his left hand is another thief and murderer. And they're having this conversation in Luke 23:39, And one of the male factors, one of the criminals, which were hanged, railed upon him, railed upon Jesus, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. If you are truly who you say you are, save us from this cross. He wasn't talking about saving his soul from the destruction of sin. I don't want to die. Save me from dying on a cross. But the other, the other answering rebuked him. Rebuked that other murderer. Rebuked that other thief. And saying, Dost not thou, Dost thou not fear God? Do you have any fear of God? Seeing that thou art in the same condemnation, you're about to die. No, fear God before your eyes, even now as you're about to die. Do you not fear God? And we what? Indeed, justly. We receive the just or the due reward for our deeds. Why am I here? Why am I suffering the death penalty? Because I did it. And it's the right thing for me to suffer for my sins. That is a foreign thinking. But is and he admitted that and then turned away from looking at the other thief and he looked at the Lord Jesus Christ and he said, Lord, remember me. I'm getting the just reward for my deeds and I know what's waiting for me on the other side of life is justice and judgment. Remember me. Remember me. And the Lord Jesus Christ said, Today you will be with me in paradise. Finally, the Holy Spirit must especially convince the sinner of the sin of unbelief. Of unbelief. Jesus Christ in John chapter 8 and verse 24 had already said, I said therefore unto you that you shall die in your sins for if you believe not that I am he, you shall die in your sins. If you believe not that I am he, you shall die in your sins. And they remained in their unbelief. They remained in their unbelief. And in the book of the Revelation, in chapter 20, is it chapter 20? Chapter 21, Revelation chapter 21, and it speaks of those who are outside of heaven. In chapter 21 and verse 8, the scripture says, But the fearful and the unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their place in the lake of fire. Who's there? Well, murderers are there, but I'm not a murderer. Who's there? Thieves are there, but I'm not a thief. Who's there? 
Who among us are there? But I'm not a homeowner. I've been faithful. Who's there? Drunkards and, and drug addicts. But I'm not that. Who's there? The unbelieving. Oh. Oh, I should have believed. I was a sinner and I should have believed that Jesus Christ could take away my sins. I was a sinner. And I didn't believe him. I didn't trust him. I didn't trust his word. And now, judgment is mine. Are you convinced? Only God can do that. Are you convicted? Are you persuaded that you are a sinner? Are you beginning to see, oh, no matter how young or old you are in this room, uh, that your sin is the way the Bible describes it? Are you being convinced that Jesus Christ is the only way back to the Father? Are you being convinced that He alone is the one who can remove your sins, can, can forgive you, give you a righteousness that God the Father will accept, give you everlasting life? Do you see in Him that? Persuaded that He can give those things to you? Then come to Him. He will not cast you out. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Come to Him, calling upon Him for salvation. Coming to Him, repenting, turning from your sin. You need Him to save you from your sins. Thou shalt call His name Jesus, for He shall save His people from their sins. The angel said to Joseph, Hear this baby that's being born. You name Him Jesus, because His purpose in life and for all of eternity will be to save His people from their sins. So come, dear one. Don't linger. 